Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and asked for his generation, who is considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he'd render himself as a guilt offering, he'll see his offspring, he'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he'll see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll allot him a portion with the great and he'll divide the spoil with the strong because he poured himself out unto death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. About 20 years ago, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, was released. Never before was such technology used to demonstrate and depict the suffering, the passion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith and I went to see it, movie theater in Montgomery, Alabama. I've never had a desire to see it again. It's one thing to imagine the suffering of our Savior. It's a completely different deal to see it depicted in front of us. Isaiah 53 depicts the same passion of Christ. What makes Isaiah 53 So much more wonderfully amazing is the fact that Isaiah, inspired by God, depicts the suffering of Jesus Christ with incredible detail, incredible specifics, and does so over 700 years before it occurs. In fact, if you'll notice, Isaiah 53 uses the past tense. It's called the prophetic perfect. 
In other words, God will tell you about events that are going to occur 700 years later, and he will talk about them in the past tense like they're, they're yesterday's news. Only God can do that. The context of Isaiah 53 is Isaiah 52. How about some deep theology right there? In Isaiah 52, God warns the nation of Israel, you forsake me, I'll forsake you. I'll send you into captivity. And God makes no idle threats. They did, and God did. But God promised that he would bring them back. He wasn't going to let them die in captivity. He'd bring them back. In fact, the nation of Israel, when you look at history, I think they've had at least five exoduses and returns to land. It's almost as if God made a covenant with those people. God says, I'll bring you back. And he does so, just as he said, through men like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, he'll bring them back. But then God tells them that I'm going to bring about another salvation, a greater salvation, a salvation not just from the Babylonians. But in Isaiah 52, I believe it's verse 15, he says he'll sprinkle many nations. This will be a salvation not from just the Babylonians, but a salvation from sin. And it'll be for all the nations. And it won't come through a conquering king. It's going to come through a suffering servant. It's going to come through a humble king who will lay down his life. And in Isaiah 53, we get a picture of him. He says in verse 1, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's as if Isaiah is astonished that more of the Israelite people do not recognize this salvation. You know, when we think about Jesus, we think about the cross, and we love the cross, but to the Jewish people, they don't like the cross. They don't see it. And the question is, why didn't they see it? Why didn't they get it? They didn't get it because Jesus didn't look like the king they were expecting. He was a humble king. That's what Isaiah tells us. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. You know what a tender shoot is? The Hebrew word is natzir. When you cut a tree down, sometimes there'll be little sprouts that will come up from the stump. That's a natzir. That's a shoot. Meaning from this nation of death, God would bring forth life and a savior. In fact, natzir, the same root from which we get Nazareth, and Jesus would be Jesus of Nazareth. He was a humble king. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing about Jesus that would have made him stick out from the crowd. Just a humble carpenter's son. He was humble. Not only was he humble, but he was hated. It says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows. It despised. It means to turn your face away. It means rejected. Any of you here ever been rejected? You got a savior who knows how you feel. He was rejected. In fact, you remember when Pilate presents Jesus to the people, he said, here's your king. And you remember what they say? We got no king but Caesar. 
And Pilate says, then what do you want me to do with this man? They said, crucify him. Despised and forsaken of men. Man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And he would be a substitutionary sacrifice. In verse 4, surely our griefs. You'll notice how many times the word our is put in there. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our well-being. Jesus would take the sorrow, the shame, the punishment, and the wrath upon him that was due us. Death is always a product of sin. Jesus will die. Why did he die? Not for his sins, but for yours. He'll bear your sorrow over your sin. Many of the commentators believe that the greatest sorrow that Jesus endured on the cross was his separation from the Father. Jesus, who has always known perfect unity with the Father, as he hangs on the cross, and you'll remember the sun goes dark as God turns his face away. God, who cannot look upon sin, turns his face away. And it's that moment that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He dies for us, a substitutionary sacrifice. And he's submissive. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We've gone astray like sheep. Sheep tend to wander. And if a sheep wanders from his shepherd, he's as good as dead. Sheep have no defense mechanism, no camouflage, no stink glands, no quills, no sharp teeth. They can't run fast. They're just big marshmallows. (laughs) If a sheep gets away from the shepherd, it's a goner. It's dinner. The only hope of that sheep is that there would be a really good shepherd who would come and find him. We're sheep and we have gone astray. Praise Jesus, we got a good shepherd who came and found us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Jesus was oppressed. Jesus will endure seven trials. Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, he'll go before Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate, and then before the people. And on every occasion, he's found innocent. The the Sanhedrin will accuse him of blasphemy because they say he claims to be God, which is the highest form of blasphemy unless he's God. Pilate will say, I find no guilt in this man, nor does Herod because he sent him back to me. 
The thief on the cross will say, surely this man has done nothing wrong. His executioner will say, this man is innocent. Surely he's the son of God. Judas will say, I have betrayed innocent blood. And these are what you call first person eyewitnesses. Innocent, perfect, and always obedient, even as he's led, like a, a lamb that is led to slaughter. You know why a lamb would go? Lamb would not growl at its owner or bark or struggle with an owner because a lamb would simply trust the master. And a lamb would just be led right to slaughter. Jesus was perfectly obedient and submissive to the Father's will. It has been said that if Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, all the armies in the world couldn't have put him there. But if he had determined to go on the basis of God's will, the littlest of children could have led him to the cross. He's perfectly submissive. In fact, two times in the New Testament, God will speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved son. Why is he beloved? Because he's perfectly obedient to the Father. By oppression and judgment taken away, cut off from the land of the living, his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's what they did with, with criminals that died on a cross. They just threw them out on the trash heap. That's what was going to happen to Jesus. And yet God would move in the heart of two men, one Nicodemus, the other Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus, you'll remember the guy who comes under the cover of darkness. I believe Nicodemus was watching as Jesus was crucified and he felt guilt in his heart because he was coming under the cover of darkness. He wasn't willing to go public, but after the death of Christ and seeing him die perfectly innocent unto the will of God, Nicodemus is moved, goes to the, to the leadership and says, I'll take his body. And he takes Jesus down from the cross. You think about how do you take a man down from the cross? You have to take his arms and put them in your hands and you have to take the body of Jesus and put it on your body. Meaning Nicodemus was covered in the blood of Jesus. A Jewish man who touched a dead person was considered unclean, meaning Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wouldn't have been able to take the Passover. They'd have been considered unclean. But in the eyes of God, listen to me, they were washed in the blood of Jesus. And God says, no, he won't go on the trash heap. He's my son. And Joseph of Arimathea would give him his tomb, a new tomb. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Make no mistake about it, the death of Jesus was the will of God. The Jews may have drove the Romans and the Romans may have drove the nails, but God was driving it all. It was the God's plan. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. They think he's dead goes to Potiphar's, gets sent to prison. They think he's dead. But God, what does God do? But God raises him up, doesn't he? And God uses Joseph to devise a plan that will save the nation of Israel in the midst of a drought. And you remember, he unites back with his brothers. His brothers are fearful, and Joseph says, don't worry, come here, come here. What you meant for evil, 
God meant for good. And what these men meant for evil, God turned around for the salvation of all those who would trust in him. And you'll see if he'll render himself as an offering, he'll see his offspring. Do you know Jesus has offspring? There's a lot of them right here in this room. Not a biological offspring, but a spiritual offspring. Because if you know Jesus tonight, you trace your spiritual lineage back to that moment. He'll see his offspring. He'll prolong his days, meaning he would have a resurrection. Why? Because death couldn't hold him. Death had no claim on him. He would rise. As a result, the anguish of his soul, he'll see it. By his knowledge, this is the best part, he'll provide a salvation. It says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Meaning, through his death, God would accomplish all the work that was necessary for our salvation. And you and I could have justification on the basis of what? Faith. Isn't God good? He takes his son, does all the work, and now salvation, justification declared right with God won't come on the basis of our good works, but it will come as a gift of grace through faith. Not only this, but he'll, he'll be allotted a portion with the great and he'll divide the spoil with the strong. This is good. Do you know tonight, if you know Jesus Christ, you are incredibly rich. You have wealth beyond all measure. Rich in forgiveness. Rich in mercy, rich in grace. But even beyond this rich in an eternal inheritance that Paul will say, no, eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. That your light and momentary affliction is achieving for you an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. That you have an inheritance in Christ Jesus that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through what? Through faith. For a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. The passion of Christ. The suffering of Jesus. God himself come to to earth, to die on a cross for our sins. It's Philippians chapter two. That although he existed in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to. But he emptied himself. Humbled himself by the taking the form of a bondservant and being found in appearance as a man, he was obedient even to the point of death even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me, there is salvation in no one else. 
If you know of somebody else who is God and perfect and died on a cross, was placed in tomb and rose on the third day and has ascended to the Father, you tell me about him. Let me tell you something. Jesus is our only hope and he's our greatest joy.